Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first time, oh my gosh. Uh, stop, hang on. Oh no, we'll just keep going. Keep going. Okay. Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Josh. Hi, Christian. How are you? Good. Happy to be here. Good. And with us, whew, he's back. Let's give it up for the awesome Jason Rugg. Hey there. My internet's working this week. That's right. You pay. Hallelujah. <laughs> so uh, we have no special guest today, but we have lots of movie updates. And I think we should just jump right in. Sounds good. It's been a busy week here at Documentary First Productions. So I do kind of have a lot to report. If you guys have questions or anything, chime on in and, uh, you know, I can unpack a little bit. Um, I'd like to start with the fact that I did um, make my uh, plane reservations to go to Polson, Montana for the Flathead Lake International Cinema Fest, where Grueling Glory, our new short, um, is up for Best Short Documentary. And so that's going to happen January 27 through 31. Uh, I was excited to find out that someone that I was with at the um, Julian Dubuque International Film Fest also got in and needed a ride. Uh, you fly into Missoula, uh, Montana. It's about an hour away to get to Polson. So we're going to ride together. It'll be fun. I think that happens a lot on the film festival circuit. I've noticed a lot of the films that, you know, are in the same fest film festivals I'm in. So I've seen different people at different times and that's been fun. Um, and then, you know, we'll, I think we may also show the girl who wore freedom there uh, Sunday night, maybe a special screening of the girl who wore freedom last year, we won uh, the best documentary award and the audience award. So it would be fun to kind of come back and do a screening there on Sunday night. So I think that may happen. Uh, the other thing that happened this week that was super exciting, and I may have mentioned it last week, maybe not, but since Jason heard nothing, I'll fill you in, Jason. Uh, it's been exciting around here because we got news that we were um, nominated for the best documentary and best editing for the Red Movie Awards. Now, I didn't think this was that big of a deal, and I also thought we had already won several awards at the Red Movie Awards. But what I found out was they have monthly awards throughout the year. And then at the end of the whole you know, year of their year, they have a best of the best, really. And so we were nominated for the best of the best in documentary category and editing category. And what that meant is we will be screened in Reams on May 7th. And so this qualifies as our French premiere, which is super exciting. And they do have a whole red carpet thing there um, with, uh, you know, a dinner and with seeing, screening the films. And I already had sort of a ticket on reserve. So I'm going to fly over there um, with Michelle Coupe is going to go with me, as well as Danny and Flo and Toma and Flavi. So we're going to kind of get the band back together there. Uh, maybe even get Charles Shea, the veteran. Um, hopefully he can come, uh, as well as Marie Pascal Legrand and some reenactors. So we're really looking forward to that event. And that's going to kick off our um, sort of summer in France, um, because not long after that, I'll fly there for that event. And then I will fly back home and I'll get 
ready to go back for all the D-Day festivities. So um, we also worked this week on ironing out a lot of the schedule for Normandy. And so um, what's amazing is that we are partnering with Delta and with the Best Defense Foundation to create this whole event for the World War II veterans. We're going to do a big dinner for them in Atlanta on May 31st. And then on June 1st, we're all going to fly from Chicago to Deauville in, in Normandy. Um, and we'll be there for about eight days um, with the veterans. Um, we learned that they are, um, it looks like they may flow, fly, Flo and Danny over to Atlanta to be part of that dinner and fly back on the flight with all of the veterans and everything to Normandy. So um, that will kick off things for us. And then on June 2nd, the Carenton Theater is going to be doing three screenings of The Girl Who Wore Freedom, um, which will be super exciting. These will be, um, you know, ticket selling events. So we're going to try to sell tickets there um, and really hope that a lot of people do come. And then on June 5th, that's the red carpet event for the Normandy World War II Film Festival that we won uh, back in 2020. They're finally screening our film at the D-Day Experience. And that will be in combination with the Band of Brothers kind of event that they're doing. So they do a red carpet as well. They invite the Band of Brothers actors that were actually in the easy company. They come there to sign autographs, take pictures, talk to people about their experiences. Um, and they will also have veterans there um, for that event. So that will be wonderful. And then on um, June 12th, the Carenton Theater is screening The Girl Who Wore Freedom again. Um, and what they've asked us to do is put Ruling Glory and The Girl Who Wore Freedom together so that we can show both of those sort of at the same time. So um, it's, it's looking like it's going to be a, a very busy time for us, but also super exciting. Um, we're going to be participating in the um, Purple Heart Lane event, which is a parachute drop in Carenton. And I will be doing a lot of the English translation uh, during this event. I've been invited to do that. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and at the same time, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we talked about this a lot. Uh, but we have decided that we're going to start shooting um, for a sizzle reel for the Carenton documentary project. Josh, did I mention this to you last week? Uh, sounds familiar, yes. Okay. So just to reiterate for you, Jason, um, what we learned from pitching the Brave Dutch is that you know, Disney, for example, asked us for a sizzle reel, which we don't have. So we had to use the girl who wore freedom um, as a substitute. We still don't know if that's been effective. We haven't heard back from them. Um, so what I do know is we need a sizzle reel for the Carenton movie project. And I'm already going to be over there. So there's, I was planning to be over there for about four weeks. So there's a lot of sunk costs that are already there. And um, so I, Tom Rice, who was a 101st veteran that fought in the Battle of Carenton, is going to be there, um, as well as several other historians that we will be using in that film. So I thought it was a great time to be able to shoot some stuff over there. Now, that decision sort of kicked off a series of events where I then went back and I talked to my team and I thought, what do we need to do in order to make a sizzle reel happen? And so I went to Virgil Films and asked Joe, Joe, 
in a perfect world, what do you think this thing should be like? And, you know, he said it should be anywhere from three to five minutes. Um, it needs to show what you're going to do. It needs to have professional quality. It needs to be engaging and, you know, make people want to watch what you're, what you're going to make. And then we did a little bit more deep dive into what the sizzle reel should look like. Zach Callahan, who's acting as our writer right now, he, um, you know, went and compared a bunch of sizzle reels and pitch projects. And what he discovered in that research was that most of them, the ones that were sort of promoting a documentary series, started off by really focusing on the first episode and unpacking that first episode a little bit. Um, and that's the majority of the sizzle. And then you get into, and these are all the other stories we're going to treat just like we will treat this one. You know, you sort of tease those out. Um, and so once we had that in mind, um, we started then planning out, well, what's our first episode going to be like? We already had a good idea. It would probably revolve around General Max Taylor, uh, as well as Colonel Skeets Johnson. And we would, you know, dive into those characters and figure out how to tell their story in this short time frame. Um, and so that's kind of where we are now in writing that sizzle reel, um, you know, and to do that, of course, we sort of have to have an outline for the documentary series as a whole. So how, how, long, how long do you think the sizzle reel needs to be? I think it needs to be between three and five minutes, like he said, and always on the shorter side is better. Uh, so it'll just depend on how it turns out. Now, I know that script Re script and the elements that you have to tell the story are paramount. And so, you know, right now I've asked Zach to begin writing the script for the sizzle reel for what he would like to see in a perfect world. And then I talked to Bill about, okay, Bill, what elements do we need to tell this? And of course, you know, we need archival photos um, and videos, if possible, interviews with some of the people that are going to be in it, like the veteran Tom Rice or like uh, Denis Vandenbrink or Thomas Voisson, who are both experts in the Carenton battle. Um, and so, but what we know is that if we can get the script together that we all agree on, that we think represents the storyline well and the series well, that will help us nail down exactly what we need to film when we go to Carenton and this summer. And what I'm what I'm thinking right now is I know we need to interview probably about four or five people, Tom Rice, Denis Vandenbrink, uh, Thomas Voisson, maybe Flo Plana. Um, and then Martha, um, Martha is a young woman who was on one of the homes where this battle took place, a battle took place. Uh, and she helped all of the GIs dead and alive. And she has a, a powerful story to tell. And so she's probably another one I will interview. And um, then we'll probably try to walk through with Tom Rice uh, what he experienced uh, during the Battle of Carenton, what his life was like. So that's probably what the shoot in Normandy will look like. Um, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about why do things seem to be moving more quickly with this Carenton documentary project as opposed to the Brave Dutch. And I think it's because there's just so much more readily available for me to make this project. You know, it's a much smaller story. So it takes place right in Carenton, France. 
Um, it, the battle is only four days or something like that. And the people that I know that would be in this film, they're already known characters, good relationships there, and they're all going to be together during this time in Normandy. And I'm already going to be there. So there's already a lot of costs that have already been taken care of. Uh, there's already stuff that's naturally together that I can fit in a schedule. Um, whereas the brave Dutch covers a vast area, vast numbers of people. I'm still developing those relationships. I'm not going there naturally. Um, so it, the costs there are much greater and I have, I don't want to spend any money really on either one of these projects until it's really funded. Um, but since it doesn't cost me very much to do this sizzle real idea, we'll try to do the sizzle and see if we can sell it. Um, so that's where my head's been this week and trying to figure all of that out. And so now I'm doing the pre-production work for the sizzle reel to work out schedules and lodging and, you know, who's going to be on the crew and, you know, all of that other stuff. I, I got to imagine, you know, with established filmmakers and Spielberg comes to mind because he's huge, but, you know, they, they've got lots of projects, quote, in the works. And we're not going to hear about most of them, you know, whether it's a script, you know, there's pre-production research, what have you. And, and naturally some take off and many do not, but one of the reasons, you know, filmmakers, I imagine like him can get things coming out on a regular basis is you're diversified. You've got so many things, you know? And so if you were working on one project, like the, the brave Dutch, you know, COVID shuts you down and now you just got to sit in your hands and wait. But if you have other projects that are, you know, you know, like this <clears throat> Caraton one, you know, then you, it pops up and you can run with it. So, you know, it's really, you know, it's diversity is what it is, but, or being diverse. Um, and, uh, but you, you just have these two, correct? There well, there's the, there's the Dear Donna documentary, which is Donna Reed. Um, you know, she had, well, her daughter, Mary Owen, and I met at the Julian Dubuque Film Festival. And once her daughter heard about my film, um, she had been looking for someone to tell this story. Um, her mother, when her mother passed away and they were going through her things in this, you know, remote place in their garage, they found this locked suitcase um, with a shoebox in there of 350 letters from World War II GIs. And so she's interested in talking about her mother's um, impact on a lot of the GIs during World War II, because they would write and talk about how they were fighting for, you know, the girl, girls just like her, you know, or she was their inspiration to continue to keep going. Uh, and so, you know, what I'd like to do with that documentary is find out if we can find any of these soldiers and figure out what we know about them and maybe interview their families. Um, but Mary Owen has, it was the hundredth anniversary of um, It's a Wonderful Life, I think, or no, it was, it was Donna Reed's hundredth birthday. And so she had a lot going on and we kind of put the project on hold. But to your point, Josh, I do have a lot of these different projects going on and people now will bring me their stories and, you know, I'm vetting them and trying to figure out, am I interested in telling that? Does this, um, you know, how difficult would this be? And so I've had these sort of on my plate, not quite sure how I would do them all, but what's been interesting is to see how things move forward or gets, you know, stalled 
based on various things. And so, um, you know, the girl who wore freedom was kind of in this stagnant place a few weeks ago, not a lot going on. And then all of a sudden now I've got all this stuff going on and I got a lot of stuff to plan and, you know, and I need to, again, figure out how to keep trying to sell the film, you know, to maybe I try to four wallet and a whole bunch of different theaters to get people in like that work's not going to stop. So I've got that going on. And then I've got, um, you know, these two documentary series happening. Uh, and I think funding's going to be a part of it. Um, you know, desire for the market. So we may do this sizzle reel. We may put this package together. We go and pitch it and nobody's interested because there's not a market out there. Who knows? Um, but I have to keep working on all of these projects, hoping something will kind of take off at some point. And you're right, Josh, you can go, like I've done this a million times, go Google Steven Spielberg and you'll see on his IMDb page, he'll have stuff in development. He'll have stuff in pre-production. He'll have stuff you know that's in principle or whatever. Um, and so there's all sorts of projects they have going on that you will never hear about, um, but they will probably put them on IMDb. So it shows what they're working on. I want to shift gears. And uh, since you're doing a lot in France coming up, what, what's going on with international distribution and what can you do about that? Great question. So uh, that's an area where we have struggled mostly because um, there hasn't been anybody singularly focused on international sales. So um, FFS told us they really didn't do international sales. We have tried to reach out to independent distributors internationally and haven't made any headway. Um, Virgil Films did tell me they have some relationships that they could introduce me to. So I need to follow up on that and see what they have to say. But interestingly enough, this theater in Carenton came back and asked me, um, you know, what I was doing for distribution in France. Now, we had signed a deal with FFS where they were allowed to um, sell the Girl Who Wore Freedom to Air France, basically. Um, but I still retain theatrical rights, which means... I can strike a deal with a distributor in France just for theatrical rights. And they were telling me that they, um, they could introduce me to some distributors that could work with me to get a visa so it could be shown in theaters in France. So that was an open door, you know, and again, in this business, it's who do you know? Who do you know that knows somebody that's helpful? Um, and so that was a little break. Um, this it, it's a small theater in a bigger town in France where the people that I know, Flavie um, Poisson, Michel Coupe, know the people that own the theater, who know the people that distribute the films, who say, this is a fantastic film. It should be in all of our theaters. Can we introduce you? Um, so I'm excited to explore that avenue for sure. Um, how we get into the bigger, bigger distributors, don't know. That's a mystery to me so far. Well, yeah, and that seems, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a challenge to get a film distributed, period, let alone in a foreign country where you're not from there, you know? So, but <clears throat> on the other hand, you know, your, your subject is in France, you have contacts. So naturally you, you, sh you should be pursuing it at some level, you know, and just, 
see what happens. So, yeah, I mean, typically the there's traditional ways like going to an international film market called, you know, there's one of them is MIP TV. Another one is sunny side of the dock. Another is the can film market. Another, I mean, there's just all of these film markets where if I had the money, I would go there and set up a booth or I would go around and talk to individual distributors or I would try to make relationships with people to sell the film or I would put it into a library where, you know, buyers come in and look at all the different films. Um, and maybe it'll come to that someday, but, but right now I got to stop spending money on the girl who wore freedom. Cause I've already, I'm already losing it hand over fist. Uh, did you, did you submit to Cannes Film Festival? I did not submit for the girl who wore freedom. We were kind of past the submission deadline. I did submit for grueling glory and got the big, oh wait, no, I didn't. I didn't submit to Cannes for grueling glory. No, neither one, neither one. Why didn't Why I? We were, well, we were past the deadline. So we were right past the deadline uh, when we started our film festival run. And so by the time that it came back around to submit, we'd already kind of done our year long run. That's why. Plus we didn't think we'd get in. I mean, I submitted to um, Toronto International Film Festival. I submitted to some other big ones for the girl who were freedom and didn't get into those. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunate, but true. All right. So we got some international travel coming up. Um, so you're looking forward to that. I imagine after your last trip, <laughs> I really, I don't know. I got to make peace with the traveling part of it. Cause I'm feeling like, um, it's a lot of travel and it's hard to get work done uh, when you're traveling so much. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, when it say again, the Montana film festival, what's the date of that one? Yep. December 22nd, uh, sorry, January 27th through December 31st. Through December 31st. Oh, January 31st. Uh, see, it's the longest it's all, film festival ever. <laughs> it's all the travel. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, and you know, I really want to talk to our Patreon supporters because, um, I know at least there's one at the higher level. I hope they're listening. Um, you know, they are qualified to go to Normandy and be a part of what's happening. So I'm going to be reaching out to them this week um, to see if they're still interested in going because that's what their uh, donation size gives them. So, yeah, so that will be happening. Maybe you should make that a qualifier. If you if you qualify for something as a Patreon supporter, you only get it if you are listening to the podcast and you hear your, you know, <laughs> you qualify, if you're not listening, you missed the boat. I am a little concerned. You know, I'm so thankful for our Patreon supporters, but I'm not quite sure how many of them are listening right now because um, we've put several notices up on our Patreon page. Like, do you want to join in on the live stream or weigh in on your comment about this week's podcast or stuff like that. Or we've even put up some video content, not a lot of interaction there. So I've been surprised about that. Uh, if you're a Patreon supporter and you're listening, uh, we'd love to have some interaction from you. Let us know that you're listening and that you're engaged. You can do that in the Patreon portal. Um, you can always send me an email and you know, yeah, we'd love to hear more from you. I, I can imagine though, there's, you know, like anything, there's you know, even though you're paying money to something, you know, you do it because you believe in it, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're 
engaged 100% all the time. Yeah. Life is busy, you know, and you yeah. get distracted. And, and so I think it's normal that you probably only get a certain percentage that contribute to Patreon. Then you only get a certain percentage of those people who engage regularly, you know, so I think that's normal. Yeah, we just have such a small group. I mean, I think it's like 13 people or something like that. And they've really meant a lot to me, honestly. You know, the fact that they give each month and it's such a small group. Um, I'd like to get to know you. You know, I'd like to get to know these people. And um, I am curious about what they think we could do better or what they're interested in hearing more of. Um, again, I've told them a million times, they're the backbone of what we're doing here. So um, I, know, I hope I eventually can connect with them. Well, before we shift gears to our final segment, is there anything else you need to bring up? No, I think that's it. Uh, we're always looking for donations. You can do that on the girlywarfreedom.com um, for sure. Uh, we're always looking to hear from people. So you can write me at Christian at Documentary First. Uh, and if you are interested in joining our Patreon, uh, Patreon page, we'd love that. So that's it for today. Well, we have a segment we've mentioned before. It wasn't named. We have a name for it. I'm already questioning the name, so we, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if there's a new name next week. But for now, <laughs> we're going to go with our new segment, Deja Vu Docu View. That's Deja Vu Docu, as in documentary view. So <clears throat> these are documentaries that, like, excuse me, that we recommend. Uh, our listeners to check out because these are documentaries we enjoyed. So I'll go first because Christian called me out last week on this and I wasn't ready. So I'm ready now. <laughs> <laughs> the the film, it's a documentary. One of my, it's not just a, one of my favorite documentaries. It's one of my favorite films. It's My Date with Drew. It's a filmmaker. He's about my age, my generation, you know, the Gen X generation. He had a crush on Drew Barrymore. So, you know, again, me growing up, Drew Barrymore was in E.T., I think Poltergeist, uh, and then other films. <clears throat> so this, kid, this actor or this wannabe filmmaker has a crush on Drew Barrymore. He's in Hollywood. He's struggling as a filmmaker, not making it. He gets an idea to make a documentary about trying to get a date with Drew Barrymore. And he uses the concept of six degrees of separation. So he's gonna document how he tries to meet someone who might know someone who would know someone who would know Drew Barrymore and get a date. The, the catch is back when they filmed this, there were cell phones, but not smartphones. So you could you know, call people on a phone, but there wasn't the internet like we know it now. And, and then video cameras, you couldn't shoot anything on a phone. They had VHS cameras that you bought from you know, Best Buy for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And you had tapes, cassette tapes you had to put into them. And his, all his buddies are broke, but one of them's got a credit card. So they, they buy a camera from Circuit City, I think, with a 30-day return policy. So they're going to use the camera for 30 days and then return it because they can't afford to buy it. So they have 30 days to make this documentary. It is such an inspiring, feel good, fun guy trying to pursue his dream film. And, and the confines, again, just that the era where there were no smartphones and the internet wasn't there and, and watching him do this was so fun. J Jason, have you seen this film? 
have not. You've mentioned it a couple times and I've never um, hunted it down to watch. So I'm actually going to look right now to see where it's available. I didn't uh, watch it until you mentioned it at the very beginning because I remember watching it when I was actually writing the script for The Girl Who Wore Freedom. I was looking for, you know, inspiration for stuff at the time. And I remember um, that was one of them that I watched. And then another one um, was Generation Generation Wealth. I can't remember what it was now. That, that sounds right. Uh, yeah. So truly, truly inspiring to me. Um, and you're right. I like it was... It was so uh, heartwarming, creative, uh, inspirational, um, fu and fun. And so I just, uh, yeah, I highly recommend it as well. Good, good pick. I, I'm sure there's, like in a lot of documentaries, they create drama in the, in the order of which they tell stories. For example, uh, Roger... Is it Roger Moore? Who's the, no, no not Roger no, Moore. No, Michael Moore. Michael Moore. Michael Moore uh, became famous for his documentaries where it was uh, Roger and me. That was his first famous one. And, and he is talking about big corporations and things that they do. And, you know, he's a good documentary filmmaker, but he was called out because the way he told, I think that story, there were some things that didn't happen in the order in which he told it, but he did it to create, you know, more drama in the film. So in my date with Drew, the way things happened <laughs> that were at least explained to the, the audience was just a great story of just the, you know, the, the protagonist, his mission, you know, finding, you know, <laughs> some, some wise sage to give him advice running into ultimate failure where you realize you think he's never going to accomplish this and you think it's over and then this this triumph and this climactic you know feel good this oh i can't believe that happened and it's a documentary so i don't know how much of it was actually played out the way that it did but you don't care it's so well done right and so fun you just go along it's a ride it's a fun ride yeah for sure. I'm glad you mentioned it. I'm going to go back and watch it now because because uh, it's it's a great film. Um, all right. Well, I've got one I'm going to throw out there. Um, and it we kind of teased it last week, too. Um, and it's not a film. It's a series. And it's uh, McMillions. Oh, that's that's great. It's, what do you mean it's not a, a documentary? It's a series. Oh, not documentary film, a documentary series. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's got a it. series. Uh, and I first learned about it uh, at Sundance. So the very first time I went to Sundance, um, I was there with Jeff Kurtnacker. We were trying to learn all about Sundance, make our way, meet people, blah, blah, blah. I was going there to meet David Patterson in person uh, for the first time. And we were walking up and down uh, the main strip in Park City, Utah. And the, someone was there handing out uh, these little squares that looked like what you would get on the side cup of a McDonald's drink when you were playing the Monopoly game at McDonald's. And so that's what the little flyer looked like. And you had guys like dressed up like, uh, I don't know, fry in fry, you know, uh, costumes or, you know, they had them um, like the, um, what's the little guy called in Monopoly that's got the, the hat 
The Monopoly guy. The mon- yeah, what's the Monopoly <laughs> guy called? I don't know. Anyway. I think, is it Moneybags or something? I think his name is like. Something uh, like I'll, that. I'll find- Anyway, they were dressed up like him and handing out these little cards to everybody. And so that was my first awareness of McMillions. And I didn't watch it for a while, but but you guys, it was so good. Like, oh, yeah. you know, fascinating. Uh, just you can't believe what's happening. You just cannot seem to think it's really real. Um, always new twists and turns. So really super well done. Super well done. And it's very funny too. And yes, it's kind of sad, but it's funny how it's throughout. Yeah, very true. Um, so he is Rich Uncle Pennybags, the oh. Monopoly Man, or Mr. Monopoly. Goes by Mr. all three. Mr. Monopoly, so, yeah, okay. Rich Uncle Pennybags, I think, is my favorite. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Was it Ace Ventura? I think he's like walking down the stairs. There's a guy with a monocle, and he just goes, You must be the Monopoly guy. <laughs> Thanks for the free parking. <laughs> awesome uh okay so jason uh you can make a choice do you want to throw one of yours out today or do you want to wait till next week what do you want to do yeah i could throw one out Uh, the funny thing is that mcmillions is actually one of my favorite all-time documentary series so like now you've you've stolen that from me forever but uh (laughs) i'll just wait a year and we'll forget that you did it um i think uh we were mentioning it before um before we started recording um there's a documentary called fire um f-y-r-e and it's about the fire festival from 2019 uh which is just (laughs) such a stupid series of events if you don't remember fire festival it was uh supposed to be the next big thing like coachella you know it's this big musical festival on an island that had zero infrastructure to support it and so everything fell apart just as everyone arrived at the island and they ended up stranded there and they didn't really have food and there weren't enough uh houses they they weren't really houses they were like i think they were actually fema tents it was just like <laughs> the weirdest this was like survivor it was like people going to a movie festival that ended up being like survivor <laughs> kind of yeah it wound up being like people scavenging for supplies and trying to get out on boats and you know a plane would show up and people would flock to it to try and get water and it was the funniest part about it i think was it was a bunch of it was super expensive so it was just all these super rich, spoiled brats now having to struggle to survive. And that's what just the internet just loved watching this happen. It was like the biggest reality show. And so like there were these really weird personalities behind it. People who turned out to be like just in massive amounts of debt and were fraudulent about everything they'd ever done. And they were the people funding it or, um, you know, had just lied about how things were going to work. And just the whole thing ended up collapsing. And um, Josh and I were talking before we started, there was actually two different documentaries that launched at the same time. There was Fire and Fire Fraud. One was on Hulu, one was on Netflix. And they were from two totally different perspectives. Fire was, they. so the people who were behind this thing were like, it's the next big thing. It's the next big Coachella. It's going to be awesome. Uh, they hired a documentary crew and then didn't pay them. So they took that documentary footage that they had on the island and went and made their own super critical documentary. And then the other one, I don't remember which one's which, honestly, the other one was more like a retrospective. We're going to interview people who were there. We're going to use like pictures from Twitter and videos from Twitter and Instagram and put those up um, and, and kind of made their a documentary from a totally different perspective. And so, you know, one is laced with interviews um, from 
the future, you know, looking back on it and, other, and the other one's more like, we're going to watch this play out in real time. And so it was really interesting to look at how you could make two completely different documentaries about the exact same event, just because you were there or you weren't there. And so it's a really interesting creative lesson to watch how it played out. Awesome. There we go. That brings our new segment, Deja Vu DocuView to a close. We need some kind of theme song, um, something like that, but- uh, It hey, ends Jason. with a ding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Deja Vu DocuView. Ding. <laughs> hey, Jason Hoban, that's your next mission. You need to find some something fun for our little segment. Thank you for all you do, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as an editor, that's one of my favorite things is just to get sidelined with something in the middle of, <laughs> like I get notified of something in the middle of a recording. <laughs> Sorry, Yeah, Jason. Jason gets to the end and he's like, oh, I have an assignment at the end? <laughs> nice. All right, well, that's it for me. All right, well, hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell. And you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody.